scarier, running from the law or becoming your mother? Do I have to choose? Can I say that depending on the circumstances, both might be same level scary? This week on Selected Shorts, join me, Meg Wallitzer, for two unusual stories by Jamaica Kincaid and Laura Vandenberg. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Sometimes the people we are closest to are also the people we most want to get away from. And frequently, let's face it, they can be family members. You know how on a cruise there might be two dozen people wearing t-shirts that say something like, we're the Carson family? They're having a reunion on board the Duchess of the Sea, and maybe at first it seems like they're having fun, but after a while there's nowhere to go where you're not going to see another Carson. And that can be a problem if you're a Carson. You can run, but you can't hide not even at the all-you-can-eat cracked crab buffet on deck four. Because the truth is, in some very basic ways, all of us and our, let's call them challenging relatives, turn out to be inseparable. The two stories on this program explore this tension from very different and unusual perspectives. In the first, a mother and daughter become a force of nature. In the second, a quartet of youthful bank robbers can't live with and can't live without one another. Our first piece is by the prolific writer Jamaica Kincaid, whose works include the novels Annie John, The Autobiography of My Mother, and See Now Then, and the short story collection At the Bottom of the River. The story was presented at an evening at Symphony Space hosted by Kincaid. Here she is speaking from the stage. I grew up reading all sorts of British literature up to Kipling, and Kipling wasn't considered really serious literature, he was just Kipling. But I thought that literature had somehow sort of died or was a fashion that no one wore anymore, like a bustle or something. I didn't know that it had gone on. I didn't know anything about Joyce or Virginia Woolf or Ralph Ellison or anybody like that. So there was a period I read all the things that I should have read. So when I started to write then, I knew that I wouldn't be able to write Jane Eyre or Mill on the Floss or something like that, which is what I thought literature was. I also knew I couldn't write American things, but there was a kind of writing that I wanted to do, and I wondered, well, how do I say this? How do I say what I wanted to say, which was a way of saying, how do I save my own life? The story, my mother, um, when I wrote it, I was trying to write about my mother without writing about her. I've since abandoned that strategy. I wrote it in that way that's rather discredited. I write out of therapeutic need. If there were no such things as psychiatrists, it would be fine with me because I would simply write. It was a way of arranging my life in a way that I could understand it and in a way that would make me not end up as either a terrorist or a mad woman, um, which very well might be the same thing and very well might be necessary to be the same thing. Two things I can see influence it, Paradise Lost, and the other would have been the Bible, but in particular the King James Version. Anyway, here it is. That was the author Jamaica Kincaid. Now we'll hear My Mother, performed by Laureen Towler, an educator and theater regular who has also appeared in series such as The Sopranos.
my mother. Immediately on wishing my mother dead and seeing the pain it caused her, I was sorry and cried so many tears that all the earth around me was drenched. Standing before my mother, I begged her forgiveness, and I begged so earnestly that she took pity on me, kissing my face and placing my head on her bosom to rest. Placing her arms around me, she drew my head closer and closer to her bosom until finally I suffocated. I lay on her bosom breathless for a time uncountable until one day, for a reason she has kept to herself, she took me out and stood me under a tree and I started to breathe again. I cast a sharp glance at her and said to myself, so. Instantly, I grew my own bosoms, small mounds at first, leaving a small, soft place between them where, if ever necessary, I could rest my own head. Between my mother and me now were the tears I had cried, and I gathered up some stones and banked them in so that they formed a small pond. The water in the pond was thick and black and poisonous, so that only unnameable invertebrates could live in it. My mother and I now watched each other carefully, always making sure to shower the other with words and deeds of love and affection. I was sitting on my mother's bed, trying to get a good look at myself. It was a large bed, and it stood in the middle of a large, completely dark room. The room was completely dark because all the windows had been boarded up, and all the crevices stuffed with black cloth. My mother lit some candles, and the room burst into a pink-like, yellow-like glow. Looming over us, much larger than ourselves, were our shadows. We sat mesmerized, because our shadows had made a place between themselves, as if they were making room for someone else. Nothing filled up the space between them, and the shadow of my mother sighed. The shadow of my mother danced around the room to a tune that my own shadow sang, and then they stopped. All along, our shadows had grown thick and thin, long and short, had fallen at every angle, as if they were controlled by the light of day. Suddenly, my mother got up and blew out the candles, and our shadows vanished. I continued to sit on the bed, trying to get a good look at myself. My mother removed her clothes and covered thoroughly her skin with a thick, gold-colored oil, which had recently been rendered in a hot pan from the livers of reptiles with pouched throats. She grew plates of metal-colored scales on her back, and light, when it collided with this surface, would shatter and collapse into tiny points. Her teeth now arranged themselves into rows that reached all the way back to her long, white throat. She uncoiled her hair from her head and then removed her hair altogether. Taking her head into her large palms, she flattened it so that her eyes, which were by now ablaze, sat on top of her head and spun like two revolving balls. Then, making two lines on the soles of her feet, she divided her feet into crossroads. Silently, she had instructed me to follow her example. And now I, too, traveled along on my white underbelly my tongue darting and flickering in the hot air. Look, said my mother. My mother and I were standing on the seabed, 
side by side, my arms laced loosely around her waist, my head resting securely on her shoulder, as if I needed the support. To make sure she believed in my frailness, I sighed occasionally, long, soft sighs, the kind of sigh she had long ago taught me could evoke sympathy. In fact, how I really felt was invincible. I was no longer a child, but I was not yet a woman. My skin had just blackened and cracked and fallen away, and my new impregnable carapace had taken a full hold. My nose had flattened. My hair curled in and stood out straight from my head simultaneously. My many rows of teeth in their intractable trays were in place. My mother and I wordlessly made an arrangement. I sent out my beautiful sighs. She received them. I leaned ever more heavily on her for support. She offered her shoulder, which shortly grew to the size of a thick plank. A long time passed, at the end of which I had hoped to see my mother permanently cemented to the seabed. My mother reached out to pass a hand over my head, a pacifying gesture, but I laughed, and with great agility stepped aside. I let out a horrible roar, then a self-pitying whine. I had grown big, but my mother was bigger, and that would always be so. We walked to the Garden of Fruits, and there ate to our heart's satisfaction. We departed through the southwesterly gate, leaving, as always, in our trail, small colonies of worms. With my mother, I crossed unwillingly the valley. We saw a lamb grazing, and when it heard our footsteps, it paused and looked up at us. The lamb looked cross and miserable. I said to my mother, the lamb is cross and miserable. So would I be too if I had to live in a climate not suited to my nature. My mother and I now entered the cave. It was the dark and cold cave. I felt something growing under my feet and I bent down to eat it. I stayed that way for years, bent over eating whatever I found growing under my feet. Eventually, I grew a special lens that would allow me to see in the darkest of darkness. Eventually, I grew a special coat that kept me warm in the coldest of coldness. One day, I saw my mother sitting on a rock. She said, what a strange expression you have on your face, so cross, so miserable, as if you were living in a climate not suited to your nature. Laughing, she vanished. I dug a deep, deep hole. I built a beautiful house, a floorless house, over the deep, deep hole. I put in lattice windows, most favorite of windows by my mother, so perfect for looking out at people passing by without her being observed. I painted the house itself yellow, the windows green, colors I knew would please her. Standing just outside the door, I asked her to inspect the house. I said, take a look. Tell me if it's to your satisfaction. Laughing out of the corner of a mouth I could not see, she stepped inside. I stood just outside the door, listening carefully, hoping to hear her land with a thud at the bottom of the deep, deep hole. Instead, she walked up and down in every direction, even pounding her heel on the air. Coming outside to greet me, she said, it is an excellent house, I would be honored to live in it, and then vanished. I filled up the hole and burnt the house to the ground. 
My mother has grown to an enormous height. I have grown to an enormous height also, but my mother's height is three times mine. Sometimes I cannot see from her breasts on up, so lost is she in the atmosphere. One day, seeing her sitting on the seashore, her hand reaching out in the deep to caress the belly of a striped fish as he swam through a place where two seas meet, I glowed, red with anger. For a while, then, I lived alone on the island, where there were eight full moons. And I adorned the face of each moon with expressions I had seen on my mother's face. All the expressions favored me. I soon grew tired of living in this way and returned to my mother's side. I remained, though, glowing red with anger, and my mother and I built houses on opposite banks of the dead pond. The dead pond lay between us. In it, only small invertebrates with poisonous lances lived. My mother behaved toward them as if she had suddenly found herself in the same room with relatives we had long since risen above. I cherished their presence and gave them names. Still, I missed my mother's close company and cried constantly for her. But at the end of each day, when I saw her return to her house, incredible and great deeds in her wake, each of them singing loudly her praises, I glowed and glowed again, red with anger. Eventually, I wore myself out and sank into a deep, deep sleep, the only dreamless sleep I have ever had. One day, my mother packed my things in a grip and, taking me by the hand, walked me to the jetty, placed me on board a boat in care of the captain. My mother, while caressing my chin and cheeks, said some words of comfort to me because we had never been apart before. She kissed me on the forehead and turned and walked away. I cried so much my chest heaved up and down. My whole body shook at the sight of her back turned toward me as if I had never seen her back turned toward me before. I started to make plans to get off the boat, but when I saw that the boat was encased in a large green bottle, as if it were about to decorate a mantelpiece, I fell asleep until I reached my destination, the new island. When the boat stopped, I got off, and I saw a woman with feet exactly like mine, especially around the arch of the instep. Even though the face was completely different from what I was used to, I recognized this woman as my mother. We greeted each other at first with great caution and politeness, but as we walked along, our steps became one, and as we talked, our voices became one voice, and we were in complete union in every other way. What peace came over me then? For I could not see where she left off and I began, or where I left off and she began. My mother and I walked through the rooms of her house. Every crack in the floor holds a significant event. Here, an apparently healthy young man suddenly dropped dead. Here, a young woman defied her father, and while riding her bicycle to the forbidden lover's meeting place, fell down a precipice, remaining a cripple for the rest of a very long life. My mother and I find this a beautiful house. The rooms are large and empty, opening on to each other, waiting for people and things to fill them up. Our white muslin skirts billow up around our ankles. Our hair hangs straight down our backs, as our arms hang straight at our sides. I fit perfectly in the crook of my mother's arm, on the curve of her back, 
in the hollow of her stomach. We eat from the same bowl, drink from the same cup. When we sleep, our heads rest on the same pillow. As we walk through the rooms, we merge and separate, merge and separate. Soon we shall enter the final stage of our evolution. The fishermen are coming in from the sea. Their catch is bountiful. My mother has seen to that. As the waves plop, plop against each other, the fishermen are happy that the sea is calm. My mother points out the fishermen to me. Their contentment is a source of my contentment. I am sitting in my mother's enormous lap. Sometimes I sit on a mat she has made for me from her hair. The lime trees are weighed down with limes. I have already perfumed myself with their blossoms. A hummingbird has nested on my stomach, a sign of my fertileness. My mother and I live in a bower made from flowers whose petals are imperishable. There is the silvery blue of the sea, crisscrossed with sharp darts of light. There is the warm rain falling on the clumps of castor bush. There is the small lamb bounding across the pasture. There is the soft ground welcoming the soles of my pink feet. It is in this way my mother and I have lived for a long time now. Laureen Towler performed My Mother by Jamaica Kincaid. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Kincaid really creates her own brand of inseparable here. We hear it in a line like, What peace came over me then, for I could not see where she left off and I began, or where I left off and she began. What does it mean for two people to be inseparable? We usually think of that word as a positive description of best friends or two people who are madly in love and who thrill to the idea that they like the same music or finish each other's sentences. And there is something thrilling about joining up with another person and no longer having to carry the full burden of your own self all alone. But in this story, Jamaica Kincaid creates what almost feels like a family legend passed down from generation to generation about the perils and pleasures of attachment and separation and reattachment. In a way, it's a story about the work that everyone has to do again and again in order to be born and grow up and live a life. At the end, mother and daughter are together in a blissful, shared paradise. But a hummingbird has nested on the daughter's stomach, a sign of fertileness, she says which makes us already wonder about that next generation of mothers and daughters. When we return, baby-faced bank robbers. It's going to be just like that 1976 movie Bugsy Malone, except it doesn't star a young Jodie Foster and Scott Bayo, And it's not a movie, it's a short story. Other than that, it's exactly the same. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. 
This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and I've got great news. After more than 35 years of literature performed live, we've gone from the stage to the page with our new anthology of short stories, Small Odysseys. We commission new works from 35 favorite writers, including Lauren Groff, Dave Eggers, and Carmen Maria Machado. And we got back stories about unicorns, dandelions, iPhones, and the perfect birthday gift to give in the advent of the apocalypse. If you love great new fiction, pick up Small Odysseys, available at your favorite indie bookshop. In our first story, we got an intimate and poetic take on the experience of life with your mother. Well, not your mother. I don't know your mother. But if some of you out there are dealing with mother-daughter issues, you might think about forming a listener support group. You could get together and talk about that time your mother showed up at your seventh grade school dance as a chaperone, and she said to Seth Roberts, that boy you liked, Wait a minute, SR? SR? That's you, Seth Roberts. You're the one whose initials my daughter constantly doodles next to hers inside a heart. Yes, perhaps your mother actually did that, but your listener support group will help you get over it. Our next piece, Lessons, is a coming-of-age story that turns that classic form on its head. We're introduced not to budding adolescents struggling with young love or troubles at school, the usual teen fodder, but a quartet of youthful bank robbers. They've escaped one harsh life only to land in another, and the story asks why. The short answer, we learn, is that they're united in their inability to fit into the normal world. As one character concludes, they are a group of people committed to making life as hard as possible. Lessons was written by Laura Vandenberg, whose most recent short story collection wins the best title of the week, I Hold a Wolf by the Ears. And the prize for best title of the week is a pair of thick gloves that will make wolf ear gripping far less uncomfortable. Vandenberg's other work includes the collections The Isle of Youth and the novels Find Me and The Third Hotel. We couldn't find a better person for the determined but fragile young voice of this tale than Emily Skeggs. Skeggs was nominated for Tony and Grammy Awards for her work in Fun Home on Broadway. Film and television credits include When We Rise and Dinner in America. Lessons. There are four of them. Dana, Jackie, Pinky, and Cora are cousins. Pinky is also Dana's little brother. They call themselves the Gorillas because all gangs need a name. See Hole in the Wall Gang, Stopwatch Gang, Winter Hill Gang, and also because they wear gorilla masks during their holdups. They are criminals, but they still have rules. No hostages, small scores, never stay in one town for more than a week. It's late summer and they're roving through the Midwest from motel to motel, making just enough to keep going. Dana watches the impossibly flat landscapes of Lafayette and Oneida pass through the car window and wonders how they all ended up here. Why didn't they go to school, get regular jobs, and get married and live in houses? The short answer? They are a group of people committed to making life as hard as possible. Cora says they need to think bigger. No more knocking over delis and drugstores and dinky banks. They need to do a real heist. There are millions to be made if they could just grow some balls. Jackie has simpler desires. She wants a boyfriend and a set of acrylic nails. Pinky is 13 
and wants to build a robot. Dana is more about what she doesn't want, as in, she doesn't want anyone to go to jail or die. In LA, a gang of female bank robbers have been making headlines. They wear snow white masks and carry semi-automatics. Witnesses have reported them doing tricks with their guns during heists. They're rumored to be retired Romanian acrobats. Naturally, the press loves them. They've been nicknamed the Go-Go Girls. Why aren't we ever on TV, Cora complains one night. They're in a motel in Galesburg. They have plans for the Farmers and Mechanics Bank on Main Street. Dana lies on one of the musty twin beds. Her cousins are curled up on the other. Pinky is working on his robot in the bathroom. He's been collecting materials from gas station and motel dumpsters, pins, wires, batteries, little black wheels. Earlier, Dana stood in the doorway and watched him screw two metal panels together. He sat cross-legged on the floor, his lips puckered with concentration. She'd never seen him work so hard on anything before. Those are the kind of people who end up in shootouts with the police, Dana tells Cora. The go-go girls have just stolen two million in diamonds from a bank in Beverly Hills. Dana closes her eyes and listens to Pinky rattle around in the bathroom. Do they want a shootout with the police? She considers the Dalton gang and John Dillinger. Is that what they want? To bleed to death on the street? <sighs> the room is hot. No, she decides, no, it is not. There's a river in Elijah, Missouri that always appears in her dreams. They all grew up in Elijah. In this river, they learned to float. Dana would stare up at the clouds and imagine they were spaceships or trains. In real life, it's a slender, slow-moving river, but in her dreams, it's as wide as the Mississippi and silver, as though it's made of melted-down coins. From the shore, she sees a raft with no one on it. She wants to get on the raft, but she doesn't know how. That night, she wakes sweaty and breathless. She sits up. Pinky is next to her, asleep on top of the covers. She touches his pale hair, toe-headed, her father used to say, and feels heat rising from his scalp. Outside, she hears rain falling. She lies back down. She tells herself to go to sleep. She tells herself to stop dreaming. In the morning, they case the farmers and mechanics bank. They drive around the block twice in their Impala and then park at the pizza place across the street. To their left is a small roundabout with a patch of green and two withered trees in the center. It's called Central Park which makes Dana think of the real Central Park in New York City, a place she will probably never see. Cora is driving. Dana is sitting next to her. Jackie and Pinky are in the back, and of course, her brother is trying to wind two wires together. Dana imagines that when the Go-Go Girls case, it's all high-tech, with thermal imaging binoculars and fancy cameras. They just have their eyes. They watch people come and go from the bank, they consider the flow of traffic on the street. They send Pinky in to pretend he's filling out a deposit slip. In Central Park, an American flag snaps in the breeze. A church bell calls out the hour. The bank is unassuming, just a brick building with tinted windows. 
When Pinky returns to the car, he gives a report on the interior layout, the number of tellers, and the points of exit and entry. According to him, there are only two tellers, and they're both slow. Dana watches a young woman emerge from the bank. A white envelope is tucked under her arm, and she's holding a little boy by the hand. It startles Dana to think that the course of your life could depend on when you decide to cash a check or buy a roll of quarters. This one is going to be a breeze, she says. Where's the fun and easy, Cora replies. She turns on the radio and surfs until she finds the news. Tornadoes are in the forecast. Last night, one of the go-go girls was spotted at a nightclub in Malibu. There was a big chase with the police. Naturally, she escaped. A nightclub? Cora slaps the steering wheel. She was probably sitting in some guy's lap. She was probably drinking champagne. Champagne gives me a headache, Jackie says from the back. That's because you've never had the good stuff, Cora tells her. How would you know what the good stuff is, Jackie replies. At the motel, they clean their guns, except for Pinky, who locks himself in the bathroom. They can hear him banging around in there. Sounds like he's acquired a hammer and a drill. Dana doesn't know where he could have gotten those things. He really wants to finish that robot before we leave town, she says. What if someone has to pee or take a shower, Cora asks. What then? Your brother is so weird, Jackie says. Their guns are old Smith & Wesson revolvers. They wipe them down with the white face towels they found in the motel room. Afterward, they take out their gorilla masks and line them up on a bed. Black synthetic fur surrounds the rubber faces. The mouths are open, showing off plump pink tongues and fangs. They put the masks on. They pick up their guns and point them at each other. They aren't loaded, so they pull the trigger and listen to the hollow click. Bang! Dana whispers into the sweet-smelling rubber. She can see a bullet flying from the chamber and pinging her right in the forehead. She can see it burrowing into her brain. When people get shot in the movies, they flail and scream and stagger. Sometimes they even pretend to be dead and come back to life. But that's not what it would be like at all, Dana thinks. She imagines it's just like turning out a light. In Elijah, they lived on a farm. The property held two gray houses, a chicken coop and a dilapidated barn. The metal skeletons of cars rusted in the front yard. The barn was filled with dusty and moldy straw. On the edge of the property, a small cross made from sticks had been pushed into the ground. It was a grave, but Dana never knew who it belonged to. The mothers, her and Pinky's, Cora and Jackie's, were both the same. Long-faced women scrubbed free of dissent and desire. Dana never heard either of them make a joke or sing. One of her earliest prayers was asking God to not let her end up like them. Cora and Jackie's father was gone years ago. He had driven away in the middle of the night. Dana remembered him being like lightning cracking in the sky, quick and mean. Her own father was stern but quiet the kind who didn't need to raise his voice to incite fear. Little was actually farmed on the farm. Her father didn't believe in working for pay. That was the government system, he said. They were sovereign citizens. By the time the girls were seven, they knew how to handle a gun. 
They could hit the center of a bullseye. They could shatter the clay pigeons Dana's father tossed into the air. Every Sunday they had target practice because that was God's day and he would want them to be prepared. Cora always had great aim. Pinky never liked the shooting. He got his nickname from the way he flushed whenever he fired. He didn't like the weight of a gun in his hands. He didn't like the noise. But he knew better than to say these things in front of his father, of course. But he told Dana when they were alone. She would lick her index finger, wipe dirt from his face, and tell him that he'd get used to it in time. The winter the girls turned 18, everything changed. A notice came in the mail. No one had paid taxes on the farm in decades, and now the government was saying it owned the land. Her father tore up the first notice because he didn't believe in taxes, but they kept coming. Dana saw the envelope stamped with urgent that he brought home from the P.O. Soon they had just 60 days to pay. That was when their training became serious. They had target practice daily. They had drills where they would run along the perimeter of the property, rifles in hand. Even Pinky had to come. He always lagged behind the girls. Dana worried about him slipping on the ice and shooting himself in the foot. They would go out there bundled in parkas and leather gloves and hunting caps, their breath making white ghosts in the air. After the first hour, her arms would burn from the weight of the gun, but she would keep going. They were given a pair of binoculars and told to look out for strangers. Every night, their father waited up in the kitchen for something to happen, for someone to come. Every night, they recited a prayer that was meant for the eve of battle. His days are as a shadow that passeth away. Touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Cast forth lightning and scatter them. During a snowstorm, Dana said she didn't see how anyone from the government could find them in this weather. And her father pointed out that snowfall could give the enemy perfect cover. That night, he asked her to wait up with him. He kept opening the front door and looking outside. Snow gusted into the house and padded the hallway with white. Flecks of ice got stuck in his dark eyebrows and hair. He showed her a pamphlet newspaper called The Embassy of Heaven which had a Bible quote on the cover. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. He said he'd been writing to the newspaper and asking for help. Help? With what? With the soul of this land, he told her. With the soul of this family. They turned the generator off for the night and the kitchen was cold. The room was lit by an oil lamp. In the half-dark, she could see how much her father's face had changed. The crescents under his eyes had hollowed out. His pupils looked darker. His cheekbones and chin sharper. His skin carried the sheen of a light sweat, even though it was freezing outside. The surface was falling away. She was finally seeing what lay beneath. No one from the bank or the government ever came to Elijah. The snow kept falling, the river stayed frozen. By February, the notices had stopped appearing in the mail. It seemed they'd been forgotten. Still, things did not go back to the way they were before. Dana's father thought it was a trick. He started working on a secret project in the barn. His face kept changing. 
At night, she could hear her parents arguing, and sometimes Dana would find her mother crying as she collected eggs from the chicken coop or squeezed milk from the cow. Both mothers seemed exhausted by the vigilance they'd been required to keep. They lost the energy for homeschooling. Of course, the children weren't really children anymore. There was only so much time they could spend shooting skeet and patrolling the property and flipping through musty textbooks. The idle time sparked a curiosity they had never felt before. It was as though they had each swallowed an ember and now it sat simmering in their stomachs. One afternoon, Cora had this idea to wait on the road for a car to pass. They had some sense of what the outside world was like. They had accompanied Dana's father on trips to the farm store and the P.O. in West Plains. Once a month, they went with the mothers to Fairfield's Discount Grocery, just a few miles down the road in Caulfield. And every fall, they drove to visit Dana's grandparents, who had a computer and a TV in Arkansas. But they'd never done anything on their own, just the four of them. After an hour of waiting, a truck rolled by, and they hitched a ride to Miller's One Stop in Tecumseh. They wandered the dusty gas station aisles. Under the glare of fluorescent lights, Dana stared at the rows of Cokes and the freezer full of ice cream sandwiches. Before they hitched a ride back, Cora pocketed a tube of chapstick and a plastic comb. At home, they mashed the chapstick into Pinky's hair and then combed it so it stood upright. On another outing, they discovered that five miles beyond the gas station, there was a town with a movie theater and a liquor store. The theater had an old-fashioned marquee and two screens. One of the films was always R-rated. The girls started talking to the liquor store owner into selling them cigarettes. Pinky was the lookout. They would smoke behind the store and then toss the butts into a field. Once, they let Pinky smoke. He coughed, dropped the cigarette, and Cora flicked his ear. They were always back well before dark. Their parents didn't seem to know they'd been gone or catch the strange smells they brought home. The farm was more than 200 acres, and Dana figured they thought their children were out on the land like they'd always been. But their children were learning quickly. They were learning that the outside world and the pleasures it held weren't so bad. They were learning that they'd never really believed in God. They had only ever believed in fear. After they stole the map of American highways from the gas station, they spent hours sitting on the floor of Pinky and Dana's room, tracing the lines out to California and Oregon and Florida. Here, Cora lay on her side and pointed at San Luis. That's where we should go. Jackie was interested in traveling south to New Orleans or Fort Lauderdale, but Cora said those places were too hot. Dana was intrigued by the small patchwork of northern states. They had studied geography during homeschooling, but now they were looking at the map in an entirely new light as being full of places they might one day go. Too cold, Cora said, when Dana touched the hook of land extending out of Massachusetts. Do you promise to take me with you? Pinky asked. He didn't look his age. 13. He could have passed for 10 or 11. He reminded Dana of a rabbit. He had the same nervous nature and quick-beating heart. 
He never requested any particular place. He just wanted to make sure he wasn't left behind. We'll see, Cora ran her finger along the edge of California. Of course we'll take you, Dana said. He wasn't cut out for life in Elijah. It was too rugged with the target practice and the long winters and the dead animals. She didn't yet know that he would be even more ill-prepared for life she and her cousins would choose. One night in early spring, they packed a single suitcase, hitched a ride to West Plains, and kept going. That was six months ago. Their parents never came looking for them. Or if they did, they must not have looked very hard. At first, Dana thought leaving Elijah meant getting away from how things were on the farm, but now she thinks the past is like the hand of God, or what she imagines the hand of God would look like if God were real. It can turn you in directions you don't want to be turned in. They are still in a battle with the laws of the land, the laws that say they shouldn't steal or point guns at people. And she feels the same resistance to these laws that her father must have felt toward paying taxes. Why not do these things, she found herself thinking. Who is going to stop us? Their first robbery was at a feed and grain store. They wanted money to buy a used car. It was so simple. They had stolen a shotgun from the bed of a truck they'd hitched in. All they had to do was walk inside. Dana told the teenage boy behind the counter to empty his register because that was a line she'd heard in one of those R-rated movies. She called him a cocksucker, too, since criminals seemed to say that all the time, and she wanted him to know that she was to be taken seriously. The boy gave them everything he had. Feed and grain stores aren't used to being robbed. The night before they hit the bank, Pinky tests his robot in the parking lot. Dana is the only one interested enough to watch. The robot is covered in a pillowcase that stands on the black asphalt like a ghost. Dana is smoking one of Jackie's cigarettes. She doesn't smoke much anymore, but it's the night before a job, and that always makes her nervous. Once the thing is started, there's no sense in worrying because it's done. It's over. You can't rewind. But being on the edge, that's the hardest part. It's like standing in front of a burning building and knowing that it won't be long before you have to walk inside. She sits on the ground and watches her brother peel away the pillowcase. The robot looks like a kid's science project. It has a round silver head and black buttons for eyes, an economy-sized tomato soup can for a body, and large plastic suction cups for feet. It doesn't have any arms. Dana realizes that for some reason, whenever she thinks of a robot, the first thing that comes into her mind are its arms. What do you think? Pinky says. Nice work. Dana flicks a cigarette into the lot. He tweaks some wires, and the robot starts lurching in Dana's direction. It squeaks and sighs. A suction cup slips forward. It's working. She can't believe it. She stands up and begins to applaud. She feels proud of her brother for building something, for finding a way to escape his circumstances. The robot takes one full step before toppling to the ground. The eyes pop off and slide under a car. The head gets dented. Pinky writes it and adjusts the wires, but he can't bring it back to life. Dana stops clapping. 
She sits down on the sidewalk. He carries the robot over to her. Do you want to hold it? Sure. She holds it away from herself. It's surprisingly light. On TV, people build robots that can talk. Pinky licks his lips. It probably takes a lot of practice, she says. An old woman with flame-red hair shuffles past and disappears into a motel room. Above them, Dana hears slamming doors. I don't want to leave, Pinky says. I want to stay here and keep practicing. You want to stay in Galesburg? Pinky tells her that whenever they leave a place, he worries they won't make it to the next town. He worries the car will break down and no one will give them a ride and they'll starve to death or get heat stroke or something equally horrible. He's breathless. His eyes are glassy. She pictures his rabbit heart pulsing under his ribs. Probably leaving him in Galesburg would be the best thing for him, though she knows she could never do such a thing. She gives the robot back to him. She doesn't tell him that if they die, it won't be from starving to death in their car. Instead, she says, everything is going to be fine, just like she used to in Elijah. No one is going to die. Soon, he'll have all the time in the world to build a new robot. You know what they say in the movies, she asks him? What? They say you have to be cool. She can see a man in a ponytail delivering the line, but she can't remember which movie it's from. Okay. He's staring at the ground. She can tell she's not getting through to him. Say it to me. He keeps hugging the robot. In his arms, it looks like a heap of trash. It's only recently occurred to Dana that some people might call what she did, taking her brother away from her parents, kidnapping. Be cool, he tells her without looking up. You got it, she says. At first, everything goes perfectly at the Farmers and Mechanics Bank. They're all in their gorilla masks. Cora is pointing her gun at the tellers. Dana is aiming hers at the handful of customers who had the misfortune of being in the bank. They are cross-legged on the floor. They've been ordered to sit on their hands like elementary schoolers who can't stop hitting each other. Dana tries to ignore the little girl with the braided hair. Pinky is guarding the door. Jackie, the getaway driver, is idling around the corner. Dana watches one teller load bricks of money into a bag. He has red hair and a mustache. The other teller is a woman. She's used so much hairspray, her hair doesn't budge when she whips her head left, then right. Her lips are slick with pink. Her lashes clumped with mascara. There's no sign of the sluggish tellers Pinky described, but it looks like these two will do just fine. It's the woman who fucks everything up. They see her hand slide under the counter and know she's going for the alarm. Cora shouts at her, hands in the air! But the woman doesn't listen. Pinky is pacing by the door and pawing at his rubber face. Dana takes small, quick breaths behind her gorilla mask. Be cool, she whispers. But it sounds artificial and weak. Stronger words are needed. She just doesn't know what they are. The gunshot stops everyone. The mustache teller stops putting money in the bag. Pinky stops pacing. The customers stop squirming. 
the female tellers clutching her left eye. Blood seeps between her fingers. Cora's gun is still raised. It takes Dana more time than it should to understand that one of the gorillas has just shot a bank teller in the face. Her hands are numb. She concentrates on not dropping her gun. She thinks she's going to suffocate behind the mask. Give us your money! Now Cora is aiming at the other teller. The man's shirt sleeves are drenched in sweat. He goes back to heaving cash into the bag. A woman in cowboy boots raises her hand. Her mouth is open, but she's not saying anything. She's pointing at something by the door. Dana turns, and there's Pinky slumped against the wall. He's kneading his gorilla mask in his hands. The customers and the tellers and the security cameras are all taking in his face. They are memorizing it. They are branding it onto their brains like Dana did with the interior of that bank in Jackson City. He is in such deep shit. Cora is waving her gun. She swivels toward Dana. Can't you do something? But Dana can't. If she were a go-go girl, then maybe she could, but she is just herself. The female teller is hunched over the counter and whimpering. She sounds like the wild dog Dana's father once had to shoot in Elijah. He kept coming onto their property, frothy and snarling, but once he had a bullet in him, he was docile as a lamb. Blood is still squirting through her fingers as though her hand is a dam that's about to give. She's blinded at best. In the distance, Dana hears a siren. She looks at Cora and her cousin nods. They run for the exit. She pauses, only to yank Pinky up by his shirt collar. He drops his gorilla mask on the sidewalk, but right then, it doesn't matter. All that matters is diving into the waiting Impala. Of course, Jackie wants to know, what happened? And where's the money? And why isn't Pinky wearing his mask? Cora tells her to shut up and drive. They blast out of Galesburg. It's nearly dusk. The sun looks like it's setting the sky on fire. They drive through the night. Pinky's up front next to Jackie. Dana and Cora are in the back. The window is cracked. Jackie is chain-smoking. They're heading to a little town called Wapello. They think it will be a good place to lie low, but soon Pinky's face will be all over the news and there will be no lying low from that. He can't stay with us anymore, Cora hisses in the back seat. Dana just shakes her head. He could get plastic surgery, she thinks. A crazy idea. She gazes at her brother's profile. They're on a dark, straight highway. A little slicing, a little rearranging. She thinks of how handsome he could be. On the radio, they hear that one of the go-go girls has been shot in the stomach. She fell behind during a getaway. The officer who shot her said that he meant to hit her in the shoulder. Turns out that she wasn't an acrobat or Romanian, just a girl from Minnesota. This is the problem with being famous, Dana announces to the car. It makes everyone want to kill you. No one says anything. Not even Cora. Dana leans her head against the window. Tornadoes are still in the forecast. A few times Dana thinks she sees a big black funnel moving toward them in the night. She thinks she hears that locomotive sound and feels the ground shake. She imagines being swept away. But there's nothing coming for them.
Not yet. There is only this highway and this car and this darkness. She leans forward and squeezes her brother's elbow. He doesn't move. He doesn't look at her. The remaining gorilla masks are piled in his lap. He knows he's in a world of trouble. They stop for gas. Dana makes Jackie hand her the car keys. When she says she wants to be sure no one gets left behind, Cora gives her a look. Pinky needs to use the bathroom. Dana stands outside and jingles the keys. She can see her parents hearing about Pinky on the radio. She can see them turning up the volume and leaning in close. Maybe they are being kept company by a robot made of soup cans and chicken wire, or maybe they are alone. Through the bathroom door, she hears the toilet flush. Her brother takes his time washing his hands. When they're all back in the car, Cora passes her a note written on a paper napkin. We are leaving him at the next fucking gas station, it says in jagged black letters. Dana crumples the note and drops it on the floor. She slumps back and something crunches under her sneaker. She peers between her knees. It's the robot. Pinky got one of the eyes glued back on. If she tilts her head the right way, the metal gleams and she can tell herself it's their treasure, their loot. She thinks about rescuing the robot from the floor and giving it to her brother. She thinks about doing him that kindness. Instead, she nudges the robot under the driver's seat and then feels sad about it. She has to remind herself that robots don't have feelings. All these little choices that push her closer to something she's not sure she wants. They pass a billboard with a slogan, Want a better world? It's too dark for Dana to see what's being advertised, but she guesses it's something religious. Of course she wants a better world. Who wouldn't want that? A world where everyone was like pinky, pure and soft and full of dreams. Or she could just do things differently when it came to all those small choices. She could give her brother the robot. She could throw her gun in a river. These could be her lessons. It's right there for her, that better world. She barely has to go looking. Dana knows this just as she knows that this is not the day she will find it. Thank you. Emily Skeggs performed Lessons by Laura Vandenberg. I'm Meg Wallitzer. The author does such a great job of raising the stakes here. At first, these kids are together because they've always had each other's backs. Then, because they've stepped over some line together. Then, that desperate bond is tested when the bank job goes all to hell. As most bank jobs tend to do, haven't you ever heard of Bonnie and Clyde or watched Inside Man? Vandenberg has made the kids in the story cousins, joining them together in an unspeakably bleak family history. Life on that farm with those parents? Who wouldn't try to get away? The kids are family, yeah, but now they're also a gang. And I could see how, coming from that family, you might want to form a gang because no one has ever really protected you or watched over you before. Plus, there's safety in numbers. 
Except the problem is, in order to stay a solid unit, these kids have to keep moving. And despite Dana's caretaking of her brother Pinky, the survival of the gang becomes the most important thing. These two very different stories bring home how much we are extensions of our families and how those bonds can both transform and trap us. Kincaid's piece draws us almost physically into the creation of a new being. Vandenberg's shows us that the bonds that have freed the gang from poverty and the past now come with a new set of rules that threatens to destroy them. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producers, circle, and members who make our programs possible with our annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. Symphony Space.